Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Sobral. Like other sectors, diversity and inclusion is increasingly at the forefront in the sport industry. But are the publicity campaigns, exhibition matches and stances against public acts of homophobia, biphobia and transphobia translating into tangible and long-lasting impact? In this episode, we're going to focus on diversity and inclusion of the LGBT plus community in sport. To help us understand this, we have a great guest. He's published research in sport volunteerism, as well as diversity and inclusion in events like the Sochi Winter Olympics and Australia's Big Bash Cricket Competition. He's the academic course advisor for the Sport Development Program at Western Sydney University. It's Ryan Storr. Welcome, Ryan. Hello, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. You made me sound very fancy. Well, I don't think I, I think it all speaks for itself, and we're very happy to have you on. So thank you. Ryan recently published The Poor Cousin of Inclusion, Australian Sporting Organisations and LGBT Diversity and Inclusion. So Ryan, I, I want to first ask about the acronym, and we've talked about this on another podcast, but uh, because you've used it differently in, in your research, here we're focusing on LGBT+. Just let us know what, what that means, why it's important that I'm sure people have heard LGBTQ+, or LGBTQI. Can, can you just tell us why you've just focused on LGBT+. Yes, so it's a really important point and one that is kind of, I guess, um, still continuing to go on and there are debates happening even with our own community. But very much so, um, the LGBT acronym generally, especially from my perspective, working with sports administrators, often can kind of bamboozle people and often I'll ask them what they know about it and you can kind of see them counting down the letters in terms of L, G, B, and then they kind of trip up and then no, Q, Q, I. And if that's a barrier to actually doing the work, then obviously we're doing something wrong. In terms of the actual acronym, so there are variations, but ultimately the LGB part refers to sexual orientation and the T refers to gender identity. Now we do have, I use the plus, which basically means an other identities that relate to sexual orientation and gender identity. I guess the third section is the I, which is sex characteristics. So that refers to people with, especially in the sporting context, athletes with intersex variations. In my research projects and the one I based the paper on, I didn't have or interview any people who were intersex. So in terms of being precise around language and especially within academic circles, I can't kind of say I and use I when I haven't got any intersex people within my samples. I use the LGBT because my research does specifically only refer to sexual orientation and gender identity. So it's those two key components. And the plus then means any type of identity that comes under that. So you do have things like the Q, which can be queer or questioning. You can have the A, which is asexual. So it refers to sexual orientation. And unfortunately, sometimes letters get added on to the extent where it becomes a bit unmanageable and actually acts as a barrier for people because they kind of don't want to get it wrong. And it's not to say that identities that are associated with a plus are invisible or ignored and things like that. For example, I run an organization and co-founded it called Proud to Play, which is an LGBT sport charity. We've actually just changed ours to LGBTQI plus um, because that's in line with the government. But also we actually have a strong support and target base of queer identities. So that gives it a little bit of background. But generally, I think across the Western world, LGBT 
most people understand that and most people are comfortable kind of pronouncing that because then after that you've got so many different identities being bunched into one it becomes quite difficult and ultimately as I write in the paper it homogenizes the experience so I use LGBT communities because there are different people and identities within the trans community within the gay male community so it's trying to think about all the different identities that make it up because ultimately it's not really great for us just to bunch everyone in and like think an LGBT person is one person because that's definitely not the case. And thanks so much for clearing that up. As you say, it's really important to understand what we're talking about and why it's important to try and understand the the acronym and why it's being used. So we're going to focus on on diversity and inclusion. And uh, there's something you wrote about that I think was was fantastic. It said diversity is having a seat at the table and inclusion refers to having a voice and being heard at the table. Um, So Ryan, how does this research help us understand how the LGBT plus community is seated at the table and how their voice is being heard at that table? One thing to say is that there has been a lot more work going on in this space. Like even, um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm British. I grew up in England. I've been in Australia for about seven years now. Even with the the FA and things like that um, and the football codes back in the UK, we're having pride rounds. We're having supporter groups who are rainbow groups. We're having anti-homophobia initiatives. Like we've never had anything like that before. So the last five years, especially, there's definitely a lot more work going on. And that's the same over here in Australia. But I think one of the problems around that is, um, and some of the theoretical frameworks I use to kind of unpack this type of work, especially around Sarah Ahmed, is this idea that doing LGBT kind of diversity work and having pride games and let's say making a song and dance about it can substitute action. So people can have policies and say we're inclusive of LGBT people. And I guess my work that I've been doing, which is kind of a combination of different disciplines around management and sociology, it's unpacking what's actually going on. So an organization might say, yes, we're inclusive and we welcome LGBT people. But when you actually dig beneath the surface, you can actually, and what I have uncovered is quite discriminatory practices and prejudice towards LGBT people. So I think it's really important to, to distinguish between the two principles because Yes, diversity, let's say, is the prevalence of difference within a social unit. So if you have LGBT people present in an organization, then that might suggest they're inclusive. However, in that organization, and especially in the sports sector, those LGBT plus people might not be included very well. So they might not feel comfortable. An example might be, as a gay man myself, I might be uncomfortable taking my partner to a football match or if I was a same-sex parent and I had there was two mums or two dads going to a football match or a a cricket match they might not feel comfortable going towards that match because they might not either feel safe or welcome so there's definitely a difference between having LGBT people within a social unit and them feeling included and unfortunately I think where we're at now is there's lots of discussion lots of um, sports have been very good at marketing themselves as inclusive and showing that they're have LGBT people in their sports. But unfortunately, we're at the stage now where LGBT people are just beginning to kind of get invited to the table and actually welcomed into sport. But unfortunately, they're not yet at the stage of actually being included. And I think one of the best indicators of this is there's something in Australia called the Pride in Sport Index, which is basically which ranks and gives a score out of 100 to a sport organisation that ranks and rates their level of inclusion towards LGBT plus employees, fans, staff, everybody, players. In the first year, which was a couple of years ago, the highest score was 36. Now they have 
gone up and I work with sports around this, they're still very low. Now, if they were fully inclusive, they'd be getting 100, but they're nowhere near those factors. So I think it's really important. And for me as a researcher and like practitioner in this area, it's kind of to actually to raise awareness about this and hold these sports accountable to think just raising a, a rainbow flag or waving a rainbow flag or saying you're inclusive does not actually mean you are. And I guess I've been one in particular within Australia, along with some other people who are quite happy to work with sports collaboratively to actually get them to the point where they are inclusive. Ryan, I mentioned it on, a, on another podcast we did on, on a similar issue that, you know, I played sport in Australia for 20 years as growing up and into, into my early 20s. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, I didn't help this diversity and inclusion and, and was never talked about. It was never considered when I was in, in the sport organizations there. So can you tell us why you thought it was important then to, to focus on the Australian sporting organizations? I think it's really interesting. So how, it, how I kind of came into this area was my PhD looked at diversity inclusion broadly, um, and it was linked to an Australian Research Council large project with my supervisor, Ramon Spy. One thing I found about that was we looked at all areas of diverse inclusion bar sexuality and gender identity. But even as I was working with a lot of the clubs and organisations, um, this particular topic never came up. So LGBT inclusion was often silenced. People didn't want to talk about it. It was kind of taboo. And if you did raise issues, especially in junior sport, and we know that homophobia in particular is extremely prevalent and strong within youth sport environments in young teenage males in particular sports and clubs and volunteers would say oh it's junior sport we don't have any gay young people or things like that now you don't just suddenly turn into a gay person as an adult (laughs) so you're obviously going to probably you might not know you might be gay but ultimately there will be lgbt young people in those environments so this idea that there aren't any is just factually incorrect. And I think it's really important to actually foster inclusive sports spaces so that even if you're not, and you're just, you're cisgendered or heterosexual, that you actually learn about people who are different to yourselves and around sexuality and gender identity so that you can be supportive and inclusive and have like good attitudes ultimately. So I think within the Australian sector, it's quite interesting just because there wasn't really been much done. There was a few things that happened, like there was a signing of an anti-homophobia initiative and nothing really much happened and things like that. So it was really interesting for me to kind of use the Australian sport context because I've been quite fortunate and lucky to run a number of sport um, research projects over the last couple of years in this particular area. So I've worked on a range of projects with a range of sports at different levels of sport, whether it's senior administrators, players, athletes, coaches. So it was interesting doing the research and kind of writing up the paper because it was on one hand, Australia is probably leading the way in this area. They've introduced new trans policies recently. There's a lot more work going on, but even if not comparing it to other things, there's still a long way to go. So I think it's with the the research that I do, it's very practical and it's very kind of linked to practical outcomes and better in sports organizations so it's getting them to think about ultimately the business case for diversity and how they can include more people and how ultimately if they do engage in this area it will benefit their business and their business and organization will be better for it 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 is fascinating because like you say australia probably relatively it's more liberal society in some terms i think we could say but hasn't really translated that into into the sport uh, landscape so I'm wondering what experiences or what examples did you find when you were looking at Australian sport organizations? 
I think one of the main ones is it was about using the marriage equality debate and sport because over here when we had the marriage equality debate a couple of years ago many sports organizations got involved and they publicly supported the yes campaign but again that was for a lot of sports organizations the first type of engagement within this space and with the community um, the LGBT plus community communities so that was an interesting one because then what I found is that society had progressed in terms of their attitudes towards people of diverse sexualities, especially. And sports organizations basically were lagging behind. So the paper that the other paper that I wrote is looking at the example and how sports actually are lagging behind society in terms of engaging in this area and trying to be more inclusive in that regard. So I think the marriage equality debate was an interesting one and just some little anecdotal stories. I often have done like work with social media managers within sport and the big bash cricket clubs. When they kind of were put in, we support marriage equality or we support LGBT people, many of them were getting trolled and like abused online and all the comments were negative and stuff. And it was actually quite an educational thing for them because I was working with them in terms of how to respond because they just were like, what do we do? <laughs> um, but regardless if it's racism, sexism, whatever, it still should be the same approach, which we don't accept it. But it quite opened their eyes because LGBT people for many many, many years, especially in sport environments, have experienced discrimination, homophobia, transphobia, and especially in online environments. So the sports administrators and people running some of these social media accounts for the sports actually got some insights into what it's like to be an LGBT person and be on the other end of abuse online. So I think it was actually quite an educational and a good proactive piece that actually made them aware and a bit more empathetic towards LGBT people and what we go through in these environments. So I think they were some of the probably the best examples around that. You used uh, the theoretical, uh, your theoretical approach was diversity management. Can you tell us what, what that's about and, and why it's important to, to look at it from this perspective? Yeah, so I initially used the critical diversity management framework in my PhD and then I've kind of extended it and used it because I'm really fascinated with it in terms of how sports organizations ultimately are businesses. They're there to make money. They're there to do good things as well. But ultimately, they're an organization of business. It's just the context is sport. I'm really interested in the concept of when some forms of diversity are good for business and sometimes it can be bad for business and when sports don't engage or they don't proactively promote some types of diversity so often with areas of diversity and inclusion yes it can be politicized it can it can be sensitive but it can also kind of be what's in so if we use some examples and look some people might have never or organizations might never have made any attempts to promote or be anti-racist and then suddenly the black lives matter movement and yes it's good to get behind it but they're acting as if they've been doing this for years and it's like well you definitely haven't so i think with the lgbt community it's really interesting because on the one hand you've got the promotion of sport within these communities and an example is let's say it's roughly about 10 percent of the population if you're a business why wouldn't you want to include a very large percentage of the population and for many, they might have disposable, higher disposable income because many don't have children and families. And there are certain sections of gay men in particular who are high earners. So you've obviously got a prime area for that. And ultimately, why wouldn't you want more people playing your sport, more people coming to watch your sport, buying tickets, buying merchandise, posting on social media? There are just so many benefits. But ultimately, 
on the other hand, it can kind of be bad for business or some sports might think that because they don't want to engage in it because it might upset their fans. So we see pride games across North America, Australia, elsewhere, and then people get trolled online saying sport and politics shouldn't mix, like stop ramming it down our throats and stuff like that. So on that hand, and then some sports will be like, oh, we're not going to do anything and we've not engaged with this, or especially within the context of women and girls, this idea that if you're a woman and you play sport, you're a lesbian and things like that. Whereas there's lots of increased visibility of lesbian athletes across the world. So often it's like the debates around when's there going to be an out footballer. And it's like, well, there are loads of out women footballers. It's just not really good point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's often, often comes the case. So I think I'm particularly looking at, and I'm really interested in how we actually use the business case to promote this. But so it's not just, literally let's get the gays to play sport and to get them attend matches but how can we actually do so by actually being interested in being inclusive and making sure that their welfare is at the center of the work that we do and just a little anecdote as well when I did a research project around um, supporter groups so in Australia the AFL Australian Football League is the largest basic sporting code NRL and rugby might have something to say about that but I'm going to go with that because I live in Victoria um One of the clubs who engage in it, so they have a pride game and it's St Kilda and the Sydney Swans who do it every year. And it's like a fixture has been for four years now. In one of the first years when it was at Sydney, the rainbow scarf they had as a piece of merchandise, which they sold as like a special piece of merchandise. It was one of the biggest selling pieces of merchandise in the club's history. So they weren't necessarily doing it to make money, but the visibility and the amount of rainbow scarves they sold people in sydney now you'll see especially in the winter will be wearing them and that's a product of something like that so it kind of is a a good aspect to think about and to consider but then we also know we've had lots of cases over here unfortunately israel falau margaret court the business sense in terms of if you do make those comments you might have sponsors like qantas who's the main airline carrier actually say we're not going to sponsor you if you don't do something so there's lots of examples and lots of nuances around the actual business case for lgbt plus diversity so i guess what's really important for for the sport organizations for for the practitioners listening as well what can they do to help diversity and inclusion of the lgbt plus community yeah so i think one of the things that stands out for me in some of the research projects i've done is that Ultimately, people, especially working in sport organization, the type of people it attracts, which let's say is predominantly white, older men, they don't really have any understanding or grasp of LGBT inclusion. They don't understand what it means. They don't understand how to enact it in a day-to-day basis within the context of their organization. They might not know what inclusive practices look like, what policies might look like. So ultimately, it's getting an understanding it's absolutely fine to not understand or to not have much experience partner with organizations or charities organizations researchers like myself to work collaborative collaboratively to engage in this area because if you don't understand it and you don't know what to do that's fine so there are organizations here in australia in the us uh, the uk like there's there's loads there's ones in europe things called fair There are lots of different ways that you can kind of do it. So there's educational resources. Um, The charity I co-founded, Pride to Play, we have a range of e-learning resources now that people in sports clubs and organizations can engage with. But I think ultimately it's like a takeaway message that for sports organizations and people working in this industry, for many, many years, LGBT plus people have been excluded and had to 
actually experience quite hostile and unwelcoming environments. They want to be included and they want to be able to access safe and inclusive environments just the same as everybody else. So we need to take actions and we need to make sure that we're actually addressing and policing homophobia, biphobia, transphobia. And we need to be ensuring that we're actually making our organizations and our environments inclusive of LGBT plus people. I think the family friendly nature is important. I think one of the successes here in Australia with the big bash and the work that we've been doing is that if you're a family wanting to go to like a cricket match, you're not wanting to hear sexist language, homophobic language. It needs to be family friendly because otherwise families aren't going to come to these matches. So I think understanding that more people can be included and engaged in your sport, which you're trying to develop, if you include more people and ultimately you probably aren't actually including LGBT people, even if you think that like a common analogy is we welcome everybody, we treat everybody the same. Well, that doesn't quite work because we're not the same and we have different needs and we have different experiences. More to do with equality than equity, uh, which is a great cartoon about. So I guess uh, just, just summing that up, for sport organisations, recognise there is a problem, even if you think there isn't, because we're not being as inclusive as we can be. And if you don't have the answers, and you probably don't have the answers, it's okay to get help. Just understand that that's the, that's the way that we're, we're going to fix the problem. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point in terms of thinking a lot of people might think because we have marriage equality and a lot of attitudes are progressing um, that in this day and age we don't have these problems anymore but we definitely do Um, I think there's a lot of research in terms of some information from the UK Stonewall the charity which has actually shown that LGBT plus hate crimes which are recorded by the police have increased in the last couple of years um, and homophobic incidents so yes when you get like progression of equality and rights isn't often linear so there's often backlash and resistance so work is going on and we are making improvements but alongside that there is increased resistance and homophobia and things like that and when people kind of hear and see progress they often might not like it which are good examples of like Margaret Court and Israel Folau um, and those attitudes are there. But I guess sport organizations can be a force for good in that aspect as well. Yes, very much so. And there are lots of examples now. We often don't hear about them as much, which I think we need to change. So there's some good work going on around um, in the media. So I know there's an organization and advocacy group, LGBT sports media run by John Holmes in the UK, who are doing really good work around trying to promote positive messages. And when stories do happen. So many people might have seen the case study around the San Diego Loyals and where they walked off the pitch in response to homophobia and they forfeited a match. So like things like that, I'm definitely here for. And I like to see that plastered all over social media and Twitter. Um, But unfortunately, we don't actually see that much of it, even though there are lots of incidents around that. And I know one of the clubs I work with here, the Sydney Sixers, we've done quite a bit of work to try and raise awareness about the positive impact and the positive work that's going on because I definitely think as well sports organizations in my experience do want to do this they do want to include people they do want to use sport for good it's just often they might not know how thanks so much Ryan I'm sure your research is really going to help more inclusiveness and and diversity in sport organizations in Australia and, and around the world so so thanks so much for talking about that perfect now thank you very much And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Please head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest research being published, including the article discussed in this episode, The Poor Cousin of Inclusion, Australian Sporting Organisations and LGBT Plus Diversity and Inclusion. 
That's it for this episode, but take a look. There's plenty more that you can download to your podcast player. Until then, it's bye for now.